Mark chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. You'll want to start bringing one, but just let your neighbor know that you're going to be looking on with them. And neighbor, if you notice your friend doesn't have a Bible, just be ready to share with them. We're going to read a lot of scripture this morning, and it's helpful to have it in front of you. We're continuing on in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Mark. You'll remember that last week we started chapter 4, and we got all the way to verse 20. That was somewhat miraculous. And today we're going to continue on in our verse-by-verse study, picking it up in verse 21 of Mark 4. It says, And Jesus was saying to them, A lamp is not brought to be put under a peck measure, is it? Or under a bed? It's not brought to be put under the lamps, or is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it should come to the light. If any man has ears, let him hear. And Jesus was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure will be measured to you, and more shall be given you besides. For whoever has, to him shall more be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. And Jesus was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil, and goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts up and grows. How it happens, he himself doesn't know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, and then the mature grain. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. And Jesus said, How shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? It's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade." And with many such parables, Jesus was speaking the word to them as they were able to hear it. And he didn't speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning we ask that you would do just that, that you would explain everything to your disciples that are here. We ask that you would give us understanding of your word this morning, Lord. And that you would make application of it in our hearts. And so we just pray now that as every Bible is open, God, you would open our hearts and our minds. That you would cause distractions in this place to cease. That there would be none. That every fiber of our beings would be focused upon you now. And that we'd be sitting on the edges of our seat saying, God, what do you want to teach me? How do you want to instruct me? How are you going to equip me this morning for the work of the kingdom? How do you want to refine me, God? How do you want to encourage me? How do you want to build me up and make me more usable in your hands? And so this morning, God, accomplish that work by your Holy Spirit working through your Holy Word. I submit my mouth and my mind and my thoughts unto you and ask that every word that comes from these lips would be directly from you and that you would bless this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. We have here in our text this morning four parables. You remember from last week we learned what a parable is. A parable is a story that illustrates a spiritual point. 
comes from two Greek words, para, which means alongside, and balo, which means to throw. So the idea of a parable is to throw alongside or to make a comparison. Jesus would use normal everyday things such as a lamp and a mustard seed and a plant and so on and so forth to illustrate or to highlight or to make clear spiritual truths. And so this morning, we have four comparisons to the kingdom of God. And the title of this message is, What is the Kingdom of God Like? And this morning, we'll learn some principles about the kingdom of God. As we learn these principles, it's important to realize that they're not only principles, but promises. You might say that they're laws. Just as there are laws in nature, we have the law of gravity and the law of inertia and some other laws. These things happen no matter what, right? Gravity is going to happen. As you get older, you realize that gravity takes place. In the same way, the things that Jesus teaches about the kingdom are laws. They will take place. God will bring them to pass. And so in these four parables, Jesus reveals to us a little bit about the kingdom. Not too much, not everything, but a little bit about the kingdom of God. Number one, he teaches us the kingdom commission. We see that in the first parable. We'll talk about what that means. Secondly, Jesus will teach to us the kingdom commitment in the second and third parables, and we'll learn what the kingdom commitment is, both on our part and on God's part. Thirdly, we'll learn this morning in the last parable the kingdom condition. So we have the kingdom commission, the kingdom commitment, and the kingdom condition. And what we will learn from these parables and what we will seek to apply to our lives is also threefold. Number one, we will learn and seek to apply that we ought to be faithful. When it comes to the kingdom of God and Jesus' teachings about it, he will call us to be faithful stewards of the kingdom. Secondly, in parables two and three, he instructs us to be fruitful. We'll learn exactly what that means in a moment. And lastly, in parable number four that has to do with the kingdom condition, Jesus warns us, you and I, the Christians, that we ought to be careful as it comes to the church and its growth. So parable number one, the kingdom commission revealed and the call to be faithful proclaimed. uh, Kingdom parable number one, Jesus speaks about a lamp. He says in verse 21, a lamp is not brought to be put under a measuring bowl, is it? That's a peck measure. Or under a bed? No. Isn't it rather to be put up on a lampstand? So Jesus uses this common thing that everybody in the first century would own and be very aware of. If you go to Israel today, as many of us, 55 of us from this church are going in August, you can partake in archaeological digs or you can go to archaeological shops or archaeological dig sites. And the most common thing that you see uncovered are these little lampstands. I think, or not lampstands, but these little lamps themselves. I think we have a picture. There's a picture of one. And that's a first century lamp, much like you would find in Israel during that time. And it's just a shallow little clay pot. And this shallow little clay pot has two elements. Number one, it's full of oil. It's very important. Without oil, the lamp gives forth no light whatsoever. But secondly, beyond the oil, it has a wick in it, and the wick is on fire. The lamp can be beautiful in shape. It can be just right. It can be a wonderful little earthen vessel. But without any oil, it's never going to give forth light. But it can have oil in it. But unless it is set on fire, it still will not give forth the light. I want you to remember that. 
Jesus says about these little lamps, number one, that they're not meant to be hidden. Wouldn't it be silly to go through the trouble to make one of these lamps, to buy the oil to fill it, to trim the wick to put in it, to strike the fire to start it, and get it glowing, and then just cover it up to just hide it? That'd be the dumbest thing in the world. Jesus is speaking in very plain terms here. A lamp is not meant to be hidden. We don't put it under a measuring bowl, which is what they would do in that day to extinguish it. At night, they would just cover it with a bowl, and because of the lack of oxygen, it would go out. You know that. And then he says it's not to be put under a bed. If you were to put the lamp under your bed, it wouldn't extinguish it as the measuring bowl did, but rather it would diminish the light that is given forth. So we don't put the light down low. We don't put the light under cover. Instead, we put the light up on a lampstand where it becomes useful for everybody around. Jesus gives us, secondly, the purpose of the light in verse 22. For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it should come to light. So the purpose of light is to reveal hidden or secret things. Put it very simply, the purpose of the light is to expose. If you walk into a room in the middle of the night, you want to expose the areas where you might stub your toe or knock your knee, or you want to expose what it is you want to find. And so the light brings out from the darkness and into the clarity that which is hidden. Now we're going to define these things in a moment. But first, what is referred to here, or what is the parallel drawn for the light? What does Jesus mean when he's talking about the light? In the New Testament, there's three ideas that are given the name light. Number one, Jesus Christ, right? Amen. In John chapter 8, it says that he is the light of the world. Second thing that is called light in the New Testament is the gospel. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that the gospel is the light of the glory of God. It's sad that it says in John chapter 3 that the light shone forth in the world, that is Jesus Christ came with the gospel, but the men hated the light because they loved the darkness. And so they rejected the light. But the third thing described as light in the New Testament are Christians, you and I. We are also called to be the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world, the big light, so to speak, and we are the light of the world, the smaller lights that reflect His glory. And it is this third reference, the Christian, about which Jesus is speaking in the parable before us right now. I know this because in this parable, He thus compares the person or the light to a lamp. Jesus isn't necessarily compared to the lamp nor is the gospel, but the Christian is very um, clearly compared to a lamp in Matthew chapter 5. I want you to see our role now as we go to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be back to Mark in a few minutes, but go to Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 5 is, of course, the Sermon on the Mount. Those of you that are going to Israel with us, we'll read it now, and then when we're on the very location in a few months, we'll read it again. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 14. Jesus says to his disciples, You are the light of the world. There it is. Now he begins to describe it. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the measuring bowl, the peck measure, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Then he says to his disciples in verse 16, 
Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So the Bible declares here, Jesus says that you and I, the Christians, are to be the light of the world. And that is the kingdom commission. You'll remember that Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, he gave the great commission where he said to the disciples, go therefore into the world, making disciples and baptizing, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, so on and so forth. The great commission called to be the light unto the world. Now, What is the function of light and what insights can we draw for our lives? As Christians, how ought we to be then if we're light? Well, think about it. One of the great purposes of light is that it helps people to navigate, right? It helps people to navigate. I was recently out at the island surfing last week or maybe the week before. And the surf was so good, we just surfed until the sun went down. And then you realize the problem that poses because we're on a little boat and now we've got to cross that channel and be out in the open ocean for an hour with no light. Thankfully, the people that made the harbor were very smart and they put particular lights right at the mouth of the harbor. And so we're able to look for these lights and by those lights, navigate our way to safety, navigate our way into the harbor. The first century parallel of this is the city set on the hill as Jesus was talking about. A city set on a hill in that day would help you to navigate. If you were a Jew in first century Israel, often it would be hot, and so a lot of the traveling went down by night. We will experience when we go to Israel, it's hot. And so the traveling would happen in the evening. And when you're traveling in the first century, were there streetlights at that time? Were there lit up signs that said, Joppa to the right, Jerusalem straight ahead, Dead Sea a little further on? No, there was none of that. And if you go to Israel, you'll see that the layout of the land is full of these things called wadis. They're these little valleys cut by water, and they run just in every direction all over Israel. And if you're walking by foot, it can get very confusing because there's wadi after wadi, and I've seen them, they all look exactly the same, and they go in different directions. It's hard to tell where you are. And so if you're traveling, maybe from Galilee down to Jerusalem in the middle of the night in the first century, maybe you're going up to Jerusalem for the feast, for the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles or Pentecost or something, you've got 60 miles to navigate during the night. Maybe you begin to lose your way and you're just saying, man, I... I thought we were right here, but I'm not exactly sure. I can't find the Jordan River anymore. And then you come around this bend, and there you see a city set upon a hill. You would immediately know, because you lived in that context, what that city was and where you were. And so instantly, you would have your bearing. You would be able to navigate. You would know clearly where to go. The Christian is to be in this world a way for the world to navigate to God. Do you understand what I'm saying? We are to be the city that is set upon the hill. We're not to be hidden. We're to be obvious. We're not to be quiet. We're to be bold. We're not to be ashamed. We're to be proud. We're not to keep silent. We are to proclaim. We are to be the city set upon the hill because guess what? This world is hungry for God. Maybe more than ever in our lifetimes, this world is hungry for God. Definitely in my generation and in the generation after me, there's a spiritual hunger a spiritual longing, a spiritual thirst. And we are to be a way for people to navigate to God. It says in Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before men in such a way 
that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You see, Christianity is never supposed to be undercover. It's supposed to be very public, very bold. You know what I'm saying? I get so frustrated with undercover Christians. And it's this wicked world system, and it's the enemy that wants us to think there's something to be ashamed of. Just think logically for a minute. Think about what the Bible says, and think about the film, The Passion of the Christ. It is very obvious from those two things that the love that God has for the world is the greatest love the world has ever known. It's absolutely astounding. It's amazing. It's phenomenal. It is mind-blowing the way that God loves us that he would subject his son to that punishment in our place to pay the price for our sins. It's unfathomable. It's beautiful. It's an amazing love. And we as Christians have received this love and have entered into it. Why would we be ashamed? Why would we be ashamed of that? It's actually illogical to be ashamed of such a beautiful thing. My wife, who is absolutely gorgeous. I'm sorry, sweetheart. I just want the people to see you. I want to make all the men jealous. This is my beautiful wife over here. She's very pregnant. Don't ask her. Don't say to her, it looks like you're about to pop. If you say that, she will pop you in the face. She's tired of hearing that. There, I told him, honey. Nobody's going to say it again. My wife has an amazing love for me and I for her. How dumb would I be if I was ashamed of such a beautiful woman and such a beautiful love? What kind of a fool would be ashamed of that? How much greater is God's love for me than the love of my wife? Infinitely greater. How much more beautiful is our Lord and Savior than even my wife? Infinitely more beautiful. He is the most beautiful, the most loving. What fool could be ashamed of such a thing? And yet the world does this thing where it tries to get us to be ashamed. And so we ought not to be undercover Christians. Because if we're undercover Christians, if we're trying to keep it on the down low, we lose our effectiveness in the kingdom of God. We're no longer following the kingdom commission, that which we were made to do. You see, you can't navigate by a lack of light. Anybody in here own a black light? Anybody, a few trippers have a black light? I used to have one back in the day. And a black light was kind of fun. You know, you're in your friend's room and he's got the colors and the posters that respond. You turn on, you're tripping out. Oh man, the black light, this is cool. But after a while, you're like, man, I'm tripping out. Turn that thing off. You can't navigate by a black light. Have you ever noticed how even Costco doesn't make a black light flashlight? Does anybody own a black light flashlight? You can't buy a black light flashlight. Why? You might die. If you're out in the woods in the middle of the night and you've got to get up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and you turn on your black light flashlight, you're going to stub your toe and get eaten by the bear. You can't see anything. You can't navigate by a black light. So don't be a black light Christian. There are people in this world that are perishing apart from the love of God, apart from the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. And you and I have got the answer. You and I know the secret. You and I have experienced the love and the forgiveness and the grace and the empowerment. Why would we hide that? Why would we be black like Christians? We ought not to be. And so that's part of the kingdom commission and what it means to be the light of the world. So the light helps us navigate. Secondly, the light exposes. The light exposes. In order for the light to expose, it's got to be brought into the darkness. Makes sense, right? If I turn a light on in this bright room right now, it's not going to expose anything. 
But if I take a light into a dark room, it exposes everything. We are to expose evil. We are to expose the lie. Not that we're to be sin sniffers in each other's life. That's not what that means. It means that we are to live by a godly and righteous standard. That we are to proclaim the goodness and the precepts of God in a way that reveals, exposes, and counteracts the lie of Satan. Because Satan right now is telling our youth in this town, you're worthless. Nobody cares about you. You can't overcome it. Your future is a dead end. Don't believe that, believe this. You see, Satan wants to lie to the youth. We Christians got to tell the youth the truth, amen? We are called to expose the darkness, to uphold the righteous standard in word and in deed. Don't expect the government to do it. Don't expect the schools to do it. The schools are not going to uphold the righteous standard. It is up to the church that is in the world. That's what the Bible teaches. And we expose the lies with the truth. So the light is useful for navigation. It's useful for exposing darkness. And it is useful to reveal something that was hidden. To point to something. As light expels the darkness, it can often point something out. Right now I'm underneath one, two, three, four, five spotlights. Much to my chagrin, it's very hot up here. But a spotlight is useful in that it highlights something. It causes something to stand out. Listen to me. When you are fulfilling the kingdom commission, when you're being the light of the world, you are highlighting something. You're causing something to stand out, something to be obvious. What is that something? It's not you and I. It's Jesus Christ. When we are being lights as we're to be lights, we are highlighting the Son of God. It's like the moon. Just a few days ago, in fact, I think five days ago, there was a full moon. It was very beautiful, wasn't it? Lauren Hersey called me one evening as it was setting. She had to talk to me about something with regards to reality. And she said, Britt, go outside and look at the moon. It's so big and it's beautiful and it's bright, she said. And when I got the message, I said, poor little Lauren. She doesn't know anything. The moon is not bright. The moon has no light, Lauren. Didn't you ever take a science class? The moon has no light of its own. We know that. You see, the moon looks very bright. It looks wonderful. It seems to give forth this light. But if you investigate it, it's not the moon. There's a different light behind it. What is that light? It's the sun. You see, the job of the moon is to reflect the light of the sun. The job of the Christian is to reflect the light of the sun, the S-O-N. It's not that we have a light of our own, but the light is his, and we're merely called to reflect it. And so when we shine forth in the world, we act as a spotlight on the Son of God. Highlighting him, making him obvious, making him clear, his nature and his gifts and his forgiveness. So the light helps us to navigate, it exposes the darkness, and it reveals or points to something. Therefore, it says in Matthew 5.16, once again, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds. See it. It's talking about unsaved people here. Let your light shine before unsaved people in such a way that they may see your good deeds. Think about who's around you and how you could represent the Lord in your daily life. Because you are a lamp. Remember the picture of the lamp? You remember that? The lamp is just a shallow clay pot. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 concerning the gospel that God has entrusted it to earthen vessels. 
you and I. The Bible compares us to shallow clay pots. But the clay pot is full of what? Oil. And what is oil a picture of throughout the Bible? The Holy Spirit. You see, the Christian, every Christian, has the Holy Spirit in them. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, you can never possibly be a light for God. Beyond that, there is offered to us in the New Testament fresh fillings of the Holy Spirit. How many times do you just feel run down and weak as a Christian and you're witnessing in your life and you need to come before the Lord and say, Lord, fill me with your spirit afresh that I might have strength for today. There's a brand new filling available. But what is put into that oil? What was it that was put into the oil? A wick. And what was happening with the wick? The wick was on fire. The wick was on fire. Listen, if you take you a little clay pot and you add to you the oil of the Holy Spirit, and you light that on fire with the love of Jesus Christ, there is no putting that light out. That light is going to shine forth. But here's what happens. When you, that little clay pot, are being used, when you're putting forth light, you use yourself up. You use yourself up. All that is in you gets burned up, that oil and everything else. And so you need to be filled over and over again. That's why it's so important, Christians, that we read our Bible and pray every single day. That's why it's so important, Christians, that we engage in fellowship. That's why it's so important that we worship and we come to church and we get built up by one another because if you're fulfilling your kingdom commission and you're pouring out, you will soon be empty if you don't get poured into. Let me testify from personal experience. It happens. If you're going to pour out, you've got to get poured into. And so, Christian, realize your kingdom commission but then realize the opportunity that you have to come before the living God and say, God, fill me with your power because the power is the Holy Spirit, amen? We know that our most powerful witness in this world is a testimony that our life speaks forth. Remember last week we quoted Charles Spurgeon when he said that Christians should be walking Bibles. And I told you and I scared you and myself with this (laughs) sentence that you may be the only Bible that some people ever read. Your coworkers, your family, your friends, people at school, you may be the only Bible they ever read. And so be mindful of the message you give forth. We know this. We know that our most powerful witness is the way that we live our life. We also know, don't we, that the most powerful hindrance to people coming to Jesus is the way that we live our life. It's been said that there's two reasons why people aren't Christians. Either they don't know one, so they haven't heard, or they do know one, so they don't want to hear. See, that, that stings every single one of us. Because <laughs> we all know us. We know how often we blow it. We know how bad our witness can be at times. We don't need to be reminded of that. We're all too aware of our shortcomings and our failings. But I want to remind you this morning that God does not expect that you will be perfect. God doesn't expect that. Perfection is his standard, but he does not expect that you will be perfect. If he did expect that, then he never would have devised a plan for his son to die upon the cross. If he did expect that you would be perfect, then he never would have sent his son to live the perfect life in our place. God does not expect that you will be perfect. You won't be. And so he's covered it by his grace. Can anybody say amen? But God does expect that you, Christian, will be faithful. Not that you'll be perfect, 
But it's impossible to get away from the fact that the New Testament teaches that God expects those subjects of his kingdom to be faithful. And so for those of us who are being faithful or long to be, sometimes we need to be reminded that God is faithful even when we're faithless. Amen? Turn to Galatians for a little reminder. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. It's, uh, is it warm in here for you guys? Ooh, it's exorbitantly hot under these spotlights. Ooh-wee. Lord, we just ask in Jesus' name that our air circulation system will get hooked up this week. <laughs> Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 7. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall reap from the flesh and shall reap corruption. But to the one who sows to the Spirit shall reap from the Spirit eternal life. And let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have the opportunity... Let us do good to all men and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do not grow weary in doing good for in due time we shall reap. Now here's a kingdom principle and this is also a law of nature. With regards to sowing, there are three things we ought to know. Three principles about sowing. Every farmer knows each one of these. Number one, when you sow, you will always reap of the same kind, right? You don't sow wheat and reap lettuce, correct? You're going to reap whatever you sow. That's a principle. That's a law of sowing. Whatever you sow, you will reap of the same kind. You with me? Principle number two of sowing. You always reap later. Or after sowing. There's a time delay, isn't there? You put the seed in the ground and then there is this time of waiting until the harvest comes forth. You can't reap without sowing. You've got to sow first and the reaping comes later. Thirdly, about sowing, you always reap more than you sow. That can be really great news. You always reap more than you sow. You could sow one tomato seed How many tomatoes will you reap? Who knows, man? A whole bunch. And multiples of seeds. That is a law of sowing. You always reap more than you sow. You can start with one seed and come out with more in the end. Now think about this with me. If you then are sowing to the flesh, meaning the sinful nature is currently dominating your Christian life, you're living in open rebellion, You're not following hard after the ways of God. You're living according to your own ideas. Just kind of blowing God off and saying whatever. Doing what you know to be contrary to His Word. It's called sowing to the flesh here in this passage. You simply have to know because of the laws of sowing that you will reap of the same kind. You won't reap the things of God. You'll reap the things of the flesh. And we know that the things of the flesh are not good compared to the things of God. Amen? You need to know if you're sowing to the flesh that you're going to reap. There's this time where we continue on in sin and we think we're getting away with it, don't we? Even the Christian, he could be in the flesh and he thinks, I don't feel convicted. Nobody's called me out on it. Everything's cool. The law of reaping 
says, and the law of sowing, excuse me, says, you will reap later on. And thirdly, it's going to be worse than what you expected. You always reap more than you sow. That's why the Lord says, abstain from evil. Flee wickedness. Because we're going to reap the whirlwind. Because it's going to hurt. He only says it because he loves us. But on the other hand, if you're so into the Spirit, meaning following after the things of God, trusting God, acting according to the precepts of God, you're going to reap. There might be a delay of time, but that's why the passage said, don't grow weary in doing good. Some of us, we labor for the kingdom, we do the right thing and it seems not to pay off. Can anybody relate? You do the right thing and it seems not to pay off. I made the right decision, God. I made the sacrifice or I gave it up or I did this or I did that and the other and I just don't see the benefit. The psalmist felt that way all the time. Read the psalms sometimes, especially Psalm 73. He says, Surely I've kept my heart pure and vain. I've done all the right things before you, God, and i got nothing but misery. And then the wicked have done all these wicked things and they're getting rich and fat and happy. God, what's the deal? The law of sowing. They will reap what they have sowed, but there's a delay. And you too who are sowing to the Spirit, following after God, you will reap the benefits. You'll reap the things of the Spirit, the goodness of God, His promises and His power. There might be a delay, but it's always going to be more. You see, God's not a taker. God's a giver. Amen? God is not a giver. God's a taker. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. God is not a taker. He's a giver. Sometimes He will take something out of your life so that He might give you more. Right? Sometimes my son is eating candy at dinner time. We might take the lollipop out of his hand so we could give him a carne asada burrito. (laughs) We don't take the lollipop and give him nothing. We will give him more. And he'll reap the benefits of it. That's our God. He's our Heavenly Father. He gives us good gifts. Amen? Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10 encourages us, those who are following the kingdom commission, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love with which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. If you're serving the Lord and it doesn't seem as though it's paying off, remember that God is not unjust. Have some faith. Persevere. Stand firm. Don't chicken out. Don't wimp out. Don't bail out. Trust God. Hang in there. Do the right thing. God always pays on his investments. Remember last week at the end of the teaching, I challenged you to be praying for one person? Do you remember that? We talked about the parable of the soils of the heart. And we said we're going to each choose one person and we're going to pray that the soil of their heart would be made good soil. We're going to pray that the soil of their heart would be made soft toward the kingdom of God and the gospel of God. As you prayed this week, it may be that you didn't see anything happen. You didn't see any change in them. You didn't see them come running to you and say, hey dude, tell me how to get saved right now, man. I don't want to go to hell. You got to tell me how to get saved. Maybe that didn't happen. But you need to keep praying. Don't lose heart. God is faithful. God loves him more than you do. God's arm is not so short that he cannot save, amen? God is able. And so we're reminded again in Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Some of us right now, 
We're walking in the kingdom commission. We're being lights of the world, but we need endurance. We need endurance. Our kids are prodigals, or our parents don't know the Lord, or there's this tough situation and this financial dealing here, and so on, and all these trials and tribulations. Jesus never said you wouldn't have trials and tribulations. In fact, he promised you would have them. It's part of this life. And heaven ain't going to be none. But in this life, we're going to have them. You have need of endurance this morning. Just come before the Lord and say, God, fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit that I might continue to burn for you. Fill me afresh with the oil of the Holy Spirit that I might continue to burn for you. And if the flame has gone out a little bit, Lord, set me on fire again. Light the fire again, Lord. I have need of endurance. I'm not going to throw away my confidence. I want to encourage the weary Christians this morning not to throw away your confidence, but to persevere. So faithfulness to the kingdom commission. I'll say this. Faithfulness to the kingdom commission always bears fruit. And that is the kingdom commitment. Faithfulness to the kingdom commission always bears fruit, and that's the kingdom commitment. Go now back to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. We might not get through all of them today. What do you think? One down, three to go, as far as the parables. But we'll stop when the time is right. We'll see how far we get. Mark chapter 2, or chapter 4, I'm sorry. It's dreadfully hot up here. Jesus said this in verse 24, Take care what you listen to, or as it's translated in the book of Luke, take care how you listen. Take care what you listen to or how you listen. In other words, listen to the truth and not the lie. And when you listen to the truth, listen very carefully. And then he says, By your standard of measure it will be measured to you, and more shall be given you besides. For whoever has, to him shall more be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. And Jesus said, The kingdom of God is like the man who casts a seed upon the soil, and goes to bed at night, and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts up. And how it grows, nobody knows. We see in these two little parables the kingdom commitment. The commitment on our behalf or our part and the commitment of God. The commitment for us is to be faithful as we just spoke of. And the commitment from God is to be faithful as He always is. And thank God He is faithful even when we're faithless. Amen? But the kingdom commitment for us is to be faithful with that which he's entrusted to us and the kingdom commitment from him is that he will be faithful to bring fruit into our lives. I was talking to a dear brother yesterday. We were working at my house and we were just sharing some of the trials of life and just the normal things that go on. And we were just rejoicing together in the knowledge that as Christians we don't have to strive to be good because we already know we're not. So it would be stupid to try to be, right? If I'm a pear, I can't be a plum. No matter how hard I try, I can't be that. If you're a Christian, you are one because you recognize that you are wicked and a sinner and needed to be saved. God didn't make you now not wicked. He didn't make you good. He justified you as a wicked one. He just declared you not guilty, innocent, 
in the eyes of God because the penalty's been paid for. But it's dumb to try to strive to be good Christians. Don't put on the little Christian face. Don't try to do good Christian things. You will disappoint yourself over and over and over again. The best way to do it is to come before God and say, okay, God, I realize that I'm a cheese ball. I realize I'm a scumbag. I realize that there's nothing good that dwells in me as even the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 7. And so God, you transform my life from the inside out. It's called bearing fruit. When we abide in Christ and He is the vine, He sees to it that we bear fruit. It's a natural outflow. Those of you that have orchards or flowers or whatever, some, anything we'll call fruit, you know that all you need to do is plant the seed, give it water, and let it get the light of the sun and feed it a little bit, and it bears fruit, right? You didn't make the fruit happen. Did you go in there and stick your finger down the bud and begin to grab that fruit and try to pull it out and force it and push it and just try to make that fruit happen? You didn't. All you did was plant the seed, and then you watered it, you gave it a little sunlight and a little bit of food. All you need to do, Christian, is understand that the seed of the Holy Spirit has been planted in you. It needs to be watered with the Word of God and with the fresh feelings of the Holy Spirit. It needs the light of the sun, the S-O-N, continually upon it. And it needs to be fed on the bread of life, that is Jesus Christ himself. And you will naturally bear fruits. It's not a striving. It's a natural outflow of abiding in Christ. And that's God's commitment that he sees to it. So our commitment is to be faithful to sow the seed, as we spoke of last week. And then God causes fruit to take place. It says in 1 Corinthians... You can go there if you like. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul highlights this fact for us. If anyone could say he did anything for the kingdom of God, it would have been Paul. But look what he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 6. There had arisen here in chapter 3 um, some disputes amongst the Corinthians. Some of them were saying, hey man, I, I follow Paul. Some were saying, I follow Apollo. Some were saying, I follow Peter. There are these little divisions. You know what I mean? Stupid little things. Hey, I'm a Baptist, or I go to Calvary Chapel, or I go to Reality, or I go to Community Church, or I go here. Dumb things. We ought to say it's all about Jesus Christ and Him. He's the one that causes the church to grow. It's His church anyway. Don't say my church. It's His church. <laughs> Look what Paul says. In verse 6, he says, I planted, he's saying it kind of flippantly, like whatever, I planted, I labored, I planted some seeds. Apollos watered. Apollos, another apostle, came along later and he did some work too in Corinth. He sort of watered the seeds that Paul had planted, so to speak. You know what I'm saying? But God was causing the growth, he says. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers and you are God's field, God's building. You see what Paul says there? It's God that does all the work. And so as you sow little seeds, as you're faithful to walk in the commission and you just tell people about the Lord or you do the right thing or you try to encourage someone or you're praying for somebody's salvation, just know that God is faithful to do the work. When he says, I watered or I planted and Apollos watered, it's in the aorist or in the past tense. It means that he did it once. Paul just came along and did one little thing. But when it talks about God causing the growth, it is in the imperfect tense, which means it is a continual action. Think about this now. 
You might plant a seed in somebody's life around you. It might be someone that's struggling, they've walked away from their faith, or a non-believer, or someone that just needs encouragement, and you could plant a little seed. You could just come along and go, hey man, God loves you. He's got a plan for your life. He's faithful. He formed you in your mother's womb. He knows every hair upon your head, and he wants you to know him. You did that one time, you planted the seed. Now God goes into full-time action. It's in the imperfect tense in the Greek. Full-time action. It never ceases to take place. He causes the growth. You plant the seed, they go home, they put their head on the pillow, and there's God to minister that truth to their hearts. Hey, what that guy said is true. I do love you. I do have a plan. I want you to know me. And God doesn't just do it one time. He does it over and over and over. Can anybody testify to God being after you? The dude never gives up. It's hard to get away from him. So when we are faithful to the commission, God is committed to making our lives fruitful. When we're faithful to be light, God is faithful to causing there to be fruit. Now that's a kingdom law. There's no way around that. It's not not going to happen. There's nobody at the end when we all stand before God who's going to say, God, I did thus and so. And it just wasn't worth it. You just didn't bear any fruit from it. There will be nobody because we will see how God worked all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose and how God worked everything for the glory of his kingdom concerning all of creation. God is faithful. He is absolutely faithful. That's how the kingdom is. Oh, we got plenty of time. We're on the last parable. We're going to look at it in Matthew though. Matthew chapter 25. It's a parallel account to Mark chapter 4. The last parable. The parable of the mustard seed. Did I say Matthew 25? I really meant Matthew 13. I was testing you. Matthew 13. We're going to read it in Matthew because we'll see that some of the surrounding verses give us a little better context than Mark did. Mark is a very brief gospel. It's pretty succinct. Um, Matthew's a little more thorough, so we're going to get a better context in Matthew chapter 13. As we look at the parable of the mustard seed, starting in verse 31. Matthew thirteen thirty-one, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So we see here in the parable of the mustard seed now, the third thing, the kingdom condition. The kingdom condition. And what we need to be mindful of, what we need to learn and apply now, is that the Christian, when it comes to the church, ought to be careful. Listen very carefully. This is very important. We're going to learn the kingdom condition and that the Christian ought to be careful. Jesus said that the last days would be characterized by one thing. What? Deception. When the disciples came to him for a private prophetic briefing in Matthew chapter 24, they said, tell us about the end days. Tell us about the last times. Tell us what will be and when your coming will be and tell us about the kingdom of God. 
And he said, first thing out of his mouth, make sure that nobody deceives you. The last days, even within the church, would be characterized by deception. So we're going to speak now about the condition of the kingdom and the need for us to be careful. When the hearers of this parable heard it, they realized a couple things right off. Number one, they realized the mustard seed was indeed small. It is not the smallest seed in all of creation, but it was probably the smallest seed commonly used in first century Israel. And so when Jesus said the mustard seed is small, all of them went, yeah, that's right. The mustard seed is very small. We're tracking with you, Jesus. You're very clear in your teaching thus far. And then he said, but the mustard seed, though it's very small, it grows to be very large, bigger than all the other plants in the garden. And right there, the Jew in the first century who heard this parable would say, wait a minute, you just lost me, Jesus. The seed is small, but mustard plants don't grow bigger than all the other plants in the garden. What are you talking about? I've got a first century Israel garden right out here with some mustard plants, and they're not trees at all. They're little shrubs. They're just little things. Jesus, I'm not tracking with you anymore. It's just a little shrub, the mustard plant. And then he went on and he said, all the birds of the air are going to come and nest in it. And he would say, this doesn't make any sense. A tree that birds would nest in would be like a big cypress or a cedar or something else that was in the area. Why is he speaking of this little mustard seed getting so large and all of these birds coming into it? They didn't understand. Here's what it means. He's describing the kingdom of God here and the growth of the kingdom. Uh, More directly, the growth of the church. The church obviously experienced tremendous growth right off the bat. After Pentecost, Peter preached a sermon and 3,000 were saved. By Acts chapter 4, there were 5,000 in the church. Later on, we read that there were upwards of 8,000. The church was growing very quickly. It continued to go around the world. Paul and Apollos and Barnabas and Peter and the others preaching the gospel. And within a couple centuries, the Roman kingdom was declared to be a Christian kingdom or a Christian nation. Rome said that Christianity is the official religion of our kingdom or our nation. That was amazing, abnormal, supernatural growth. But it started very small. This unsightly, seemingly normal until he like walked on water and stuff guy named Jesus came in Israel. He had these 12 guys. One of them was a traitor. One of them was a big mouth. Another one was a conniving tax collector. From these 12 guys, the kingdom of God exploded and expanded. And so someone might say, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, that's unusual. I see how you're illustrating the kingdom of God. There's a little seed and it gets real big. But what about this thing concerning the birds? What do you mean all the birds of the air are going to come and nest in? What does that mean? In context here, last week we studied the parable of the sower and the seed in the soils of the heart. Do you remember that he said the sower went out and he sowed seed and some of it fell on the roadside along the hard ground? What happened to that seed? Remember, he said that the birds of the air came along and they snatched away or they ate the seed. Later on, when he explained it to his disciples, he said that the birds of the air were a picture of Satan, the evil one. That he comes and snatches away the seed that is sown on the hard ground. We learned about that. And so in context, and it's the same thing here in chapter 13, the birds, and throughout really the New Testament and the Old, these birds represent evil or more directly, the evil one. 
What is he saying here? He's saying that the church would grow to an amazing extent. It would grow around the world, but that the evil one would come with his guys and plant himself in it. He would come and roost in its branches and its leaves. What is he talking about? Look in context in the parable he gave just before. The parable of the tares and the wheat. Verse 24. He presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Listen very carefully. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Hey man, we thought you sowed good seed in your field. How is it that it has tares or these weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slave said to him, Do you want us to go then and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you're gathering up the tares, you may root up some of the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. What in the world is Jesus talking about? He explains it very clearly in verse 37. They asked him what he meant, and he says in verse 37, Jesus answered and said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. That is Jesus. The field is the world. Jesus working in the world. As for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. These are the Christians. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. The ones who were planted among the Christians by Satan. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Listen to what Jesus said. He said that in the last days, even the church would be characterized by deception. That there would be those in the church who look like Christians, who look like wheat, but they are not. And what they're doing is choking out the life of the church. You see, tares were a common form of weed in that time. And that weed would grow amongst the wheat. And while it was growing, it looked exactly like the wheat. Not even an expert could tell the two apart. Until the wheat gave forth fruit. And then the tares would become obvious because tares never bore any fruit. It was just a weed. And so then they know, oh, okay, this is the real wheat. This is the false. All the while, what was the tare doing? The tare was sending down its larger roots and it was going into the ground and it was strangling out the roots of the wheat and it was pulling away vital nutrients and life and sustenance. There are those within the church who are planted here by the enemy of God, even within this church. And they are here to rip off the saints of God or the wheat of God, the sons and daughters of the kingdom. And so Christians, we've got to be wise. Jesus said you would recognize the disciples by their fruit. Look for the fruit in people's lives. Someone could come to you and say, hey, praise the Lord, brother, I'm a Christian. You don't know if they are. If they are, it's going to be obvious. There's going to be fruit in their life. Jesus said you will recognize my disciples by their love for one another. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Why is this so important? Because that tear would send down its big roots and it would pull away all the health of the wheat and the fruit would be decreased. You see, there's scammers in the body of Christ. Listen to me now. There's scammers in the body of Christ. Those who either knowingly or unknowing unto themselves are planted here by the enemy to suck away the fruit, to strangle out the good works, to try to get Christians distracted with all sorts of things, to try to bring in false doctrine, to try to scam and work the body of God. 
to bring division in our body, to bring quarreling and backbiting and slander and malice and anger, all these things that are not of God but are of Satan. Satan wants the church to do one thing to compromise. He knows that the church is born again. He knows that the church is going up in the rapture. He knows that there's nothing that he can do to snatch the Christian out of the, hand of the God, out of the hand of God so he is satisfied to have the Christian compromise. Christians, when we compromise, we play into the hand of the enemy. That's why we are told to stand firm in our faith, resist the devil, and he will flee from us. We must be wise and know that even today in this body right here, there are those who are agents of the enemy. What do we do about it? We better know our Bibles. We better know our Bibles. Because when the enemy comes, he comes with lies. He comes with deceit. He comes with false doctrine. And he preys upon those who are weak. Every Christian here needs to be strong and founded in the word of God. And we better love one another. Because we will know them by their love. It's impossible for the non-Christian to keep up the facade for very long. Because the light, you expose the darkness. Don't be afraid. Be bold. Be sound. God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and love and of a sound mind. Identify the tares among the wheat and pray for their salvation. Stand firm in the truth. Don't take any nonsense in this church from the enemy or those who are spreading false doctrine. Stand firm, but love abound in our midst. Amen? God, we thank you for your word this morning. That it is utterly powerful and that it reveals so much to us and we simply pray now that you would cause it to bear the fruit that you've determined for it. You would keep us as this body from compromise, from the deceitfulness of sin. You'd cause us to realize our kingdom commission, the kingdom commitments, and the kingdom condition. Make us wise and faithful stewards in these last days, Lord. We submit ourselves to your teaching and to the empowering of the Holy Spirit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.